Good morning. There we go. Now we got it. Let's stand if you if you you just gotta sit down too quick. Amen. How many is glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Before I get into what we're going to speak on today, I, I just several things just came to to mind. And I've, I've mentioned this before. It's been years uh, probably since I've mentioned it here. And some of you may or may not know this, but there, there's a little town in the south part of uh, Alabama called Enterprise, Alabama. It's a small place. Uh, Coffee County is, is what the county uh, is there. And uh, it's notable in that town because they have a statue right in the center of town of a bow weevil. And uh, it's a woman in a flowing gown. It's a statue. And she's holding both hands up. And on a, like a platter is an enlarged insect called a boll weevil. And you go, what in the world would they do that? And they have a plaque there and everything. And you literally have to drive around it in, in uh, Enterprise right downtown. And it says that, that they, they built that statue to honor the bow weevil and to acknowledge him as a herald of prosperity in that whole region. And so what this was around 1915, and back then there was a thing called, you know, the, the, the saying of the South was cotton is king, king cotton. And every farmer just about in every region of the South, southeastern United States, grew cotton. And... Uh, the bow weevil came in, which was unheard of, and decimated the cotton crop. Uh, in that one county in 1915, they lost over 60% of the cotton crop due to that insect. They didn't know how, what, how to eradicate it, what to do with it. Farmers were going bankrupt, and then everybody that was attached to farming, which was everybody, the hardware stores were going bankrupt because the farmers wouldn't buy it. And it, just, it was just a trickle-down economic disaster. And, and many people lost things and businesses went under and, and it was a, just a devastating time. And then uh, through the encouragement of others, they got a hold of this little crop that nobody was using much in those days called peanuts. You ever heard of it? And a precious African-American man named George Washington Carver had invented over 100 uses of this little thing called the peanut that not many people were paying very much attention to at that time. But they began to plant peanuts because it was more than just to eat a nut. They began to know they could make peanut butter out of it. They could do this and they could do that. And it changed that whole southeast region. And then just two years later, Coffee County that county that was decimated grew more peanuts and harvested more peanuts than any county in the whole United States. And it, and it catapulted them and agriculture financially in the whole southeast. And the people were so appreciative of that that they just said that we're going to put a statue up acknowledging the bow weevil. Because if it had not been for this disaster, this bow weevil, we would have not known the prosperity that we now experience. I think you're smart folks and you get the point here, but there's things that come in our lives that look like it's decimating us, 
destroying us, robbing us, and it's the it's the most. And at that moment, we think it's the most awful thing that could happen. But can I say to you that God is able to use what the enemy meant for harm to turn it around and use it for good. And 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 that that thing that came to destroy you could actually be something one day that you'll memorialize as this is when my life changed. This is when I, I thought it, I was done for. I thought that this was going to be the end, but it was only the beginning. Can you say amen? That, 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 see, God didn't sin, but what the enemy meant for harm, God's able to turn it around and use it for good. Because God's not limited to one crop, one person, one economy, one, one of anything. Can you say amen? Now, last night, me and my family my, and my grandkids was over there, praise God. And uh, so I had some uh, oysters on the grill. And I'm talking about still in the, you know, in, in the shell. And so my, my oldest grandson, he was out there, and he, we just got, you know, he was, you know, my papa, them things look, you know, look so ugly. And, uh, but he was eating them, though. He likes them if they're cooked. And I said, yeah. I said, they, they look really ugly. But I said, do you know that out of this right here uh, comes pearls? And I said, you know, like the pearls, like your mama's got a necklace of pearls, and that's where they come from. And he was just like, oh, yeah? I said, yeah. And he said, well, how does that happen? And this is true, but an irritant can send that oyster. Most of you know this. But an irritant comes in, something that irritates that oyster. And they start secreting this, this, this whatever out of their bodies, out of their, and it, and it forms over time an oyster. Valuable, sought after, precious. Again, I'm trying to tell you that out of things so ugly, because an oyster, now that is ugly, it's ugly. But out of something so ugly, those things that come in there to irritate you, those things can be turned into a pearl. Now, let me ask you this. The gates that lead into the New Jerusalem, what are those gates made out of? One solid pearl. Now, God's pretty smart, and God could have made the gates that enter into his kingdom out of anything he wanted to. You agree? But God chose a pearl. God did. God said the gates that lead into the, the New Jerusalem are made of pearl. Each gate is made out of one pearl. We can't even imagine a pearl that big. But yet God chose that. It says this is how you enter in. Those things that meant to destroy. See, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they thought that's the end. But it was through his death that life actually came. You see what I'm saying? That's, that's the pathway a lot of times. And can I say to you that things that are ugly, things that don't make any sense, that but out of those things, those things that come to irritate you, to frustrate you, to aggravate you, to, all those things, God's able to bring a pearl out of that that will actually give you entrance into something that you never even experienced before. Amen? Like I said last Sunday, that there was worth the drive just to get them to. And they were free. They're not even in the notes. Amen? Now today I want to, I mentioned this some weeks ago, and I want to do this today and then we'll do it next Sunday, unless the Lord has a different plan. But I want to talk to you about things that Jesus never said, things that Jesus 
never said. Now, when I say that, the list could be endless of things Jesus never said, but I'm talking about things that Jesus never said that most of the church thinks he said, those kind of things. If you look in John chapter 7, the seventh chapter of the book of John in verse 40, let's just read some verses and I'll let you be seated. John 7 and 40, it says, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Now, they're talking about Jesus. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, can I say to you that there's a lot of division still today because of him? People are divided into denominational sects. They're divided into this belief, into that belief, into this religion and that religion. And really, <clears throat> the problem here in Scripture was not that any of this was wrong. But see, some of them say, well, you know, uh, is he supposed to come out of Galilee? We, he's not, the Messiah is not to come out of Galilee. They said, I read where the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem, where David was born. And then others said, no, the prophets prophesied that out of Egypt I have called my son. And he would come out of Egypt. And then others said, no, the, the, one of the prophets prophesied that he would be called a Nazarene. Because he would come from Nazareth. And others said, no, one prophet prophesied that out of Galilee shall he come. And so there was a division. They were confused. They were thinking, well, somebody's wrong. <clears throat> How many knows they wasn't into the prophets wrong? They were all right. He did come from Bethlehem. He did was born in the same little place that David came from. And he was called out of Egypt after he went to Egypt and fled at the death threat of Herod. And he came back out of Egypt, back to Nazareth. So he'd be called a Nazarene. And his ministry was per predominantly around the Sea of Galilee. And he was called a Galilean just because of where he ministered. All those things were true. But yet the people were confused. And listen, can I say to you the problem wasn't on God's end? The problem was their understanding. The problem we have and experience is not the Bible. It's our understanding or lack of understanding of the Bible. Verse 44, now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid their hands on him. And then the officers came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, why, why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him? Look at what the verse 46 said. The officers answered, look what they said about Jesus. No man ever spoke like this man. No man ever spoke like this man. Listen, Jesus' words were so radically different than the ones that were being portrayed in that day by the religious hierarchy. And can I say to you that Jesus' words still today are radically different than what religion portrays his words to be. His words brought life, healing, deliverance, and salvation. His words brought comfort to them that would hear them and believe them. Amen? You can be seated. What I want to do is I want to go through, and I don't know how many I'll get through today. I only have 10, and I want to do, you know, just to, you could do a long time on all of these. Each of these in themselves is really a whole, whole sermon. But I just want to cover some things that a lot of the church, you hear things so often sometimes in the church that you think that it must be in the Bible. And, uh, 
but many of those things are not in the Bible, and the reason they're big deals is because they confuse us and they give us a wrong view of who God is. Now, he knows that Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. The first thing I want to give you, the first one is in... Jesus did not say in the day that you eat of the tree. God didn't say in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, in that day I will kill you. Right? And a lot of people see what went on in the garden as God being punitive to them. Now, I want to just add as an addendum to that, I won't count it as number two, but another one that you hear closely associated and tied with this is it's almost like common knowledge in the church, but it is not in the Bible, is they say God is so holy he can't even look at sin. You ever heard that one? It's not in the Bible, and it's not true. And, and the reason that's an important, important deal, because a lot of folks are sinners, and they, or, or either Christians sin, and they feel like in that moment that God, God don't even look at them, that God turns his back from them, that God turns away from them, that they're, they're cut off from God. And that's a bad position to believe that you're in, when in all actuality you're not in that position at all. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, in that moment, uh, they did something very different than you and I. When Adam and Eve sinned in that moment, they became sinners because they had sinned. Are you with me? Now, you and I, we have never became a sinner because we sinned. In other words, what made you a sinner is not a wrong that you committed. And if y'all would read Romans 5, you could say amen right there besides me and Brother Ken and a few others. The Bible says that many, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Who was that one man that disobeyed? Adam. So you got handed down what Adam did, and you were born sinners. You see the difference? Now, Adam and Eve are the only two people that are on the planet that are unique in the fact that they became sinners by committing sin. You and I were born sinners. So sinners do what? They sin. We were made sinners. By who? By Adam. You go, that's not fair. Well, I understand that. But in that same verse in Romans 5, the, the B portion of that verse says, many were made sinners by this one man's disobedience, but by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Who's that one man that obeyed, even to the point of death? Jesus. So in other words, what Adam did got handed to you without you praying for it. Right? In other words, you became a sinner by birth. If you can believe that, how many believe that you were made a sinner, because the Bible says it, by, the, by what Adam did? Not what you did, but what Adam did. If you can believe that, then you've got to also believe that you've been made, if you put your faith and confidence in Christ, you've been made righteous not by anything you've done, but by what Jesus did. And when, when did you get what Adam did? When you were born, naturally. When did you get what Jesus did? When you're born again, supernaturally. Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and so when Adam and Eve sinned, let me ask you this, did God still come and walk with them in the cool of the evening? So apparently that thing about he can't look at sin don't, don't add up, right? Because if that was true, he would not have ever came back to the planet again. But God still came. And not only did he come, he came seeking them and they were hiding from him because they were fearful because of their sin. God didn't come to the, to, back to the planet Earth, so to speak, because Adam and Eve had sinned and they needed his forgiveness. The Bible said that God told them in the day that you choose to eat of this tree that I've told you not to eat of because that's not life. 
There's a tree of life, eat of it all you want. But there is the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of that tree, in that day you shall surely what? God didn't say, I'll kill you. God didn't say, I'll kill you. If you try to live based on good and evil and live good enough to go to heaven and live and all that, that's death to you. That's death to you. That's not life there. The Bible, Jesus said, I have come that they might have what? Life. Life. He, he didn't come that they might have forgiveness. Yeah, he purchased and gave our forgiveness, but he come that we needed because we needed life. He didn't come because we needed forgiveness. Can you say amen? The second thing that Jesus never said is God loves you, but he also at times becomes angry with you, particularly when you sin. Have you ever felt like that, that God's angry with you? And if you listen to a lot of preachers today, they will make you believe that we are still worshiping a God who periodically gets very wrathful and angry, not only at us individually, but at nations. They'll say things, and I'm not, it's not the ones I'm talking about today, but they'll say there's so much, you know, there's so much sin in this city, then I'm going to have to send an earthquake over here to get their attention. Or I'm going to have to do like, a, you know, like Houston, I'm going to have to send a flood to get their attention. Or I'm going to have to do like I did in New Orleans because they got so many strip clubs there and they got so much sin in New Orleans that I'm going to send Katrina in there and drown a couple of hundred people and that will get their attention. Do you know that the church is filled with people that believe that kind of garbage about God? You have preachers that God's about to judge America. God, he, he's about to. Why did he start right now? I mean, what's the difference now that all of a sudden now God's about to? He's about to judge us. He's about to do this. It's just, it's just religious bull. Just lies. God's already judged America and every other nation and the world for the sin, and that judgment was born on the cross by his son Jesus. And so this is extremely important because if you believe a lie, you'll live a lie. And, and I was raised up on an angry God. Now, America got greatly influenced. Uh, and you wouldn't think something would hold on this long, but there was a great preacher in, the se in 1741 called Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon which has been declared by many. You can go on Google and type in, don't do it while I'm preaching, <clears throat> but you can go on Google and, and write, what's the greatest sermon ever preached in America? And many of those search engines will bring up this sermon, even today, by Jonathan Edwards that was preached on July the 8th in 1741. And, and the title of that sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's been reprinted in, 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 uh, in, in more, you know, than, than any other sermon ever preached by a preacher. And, and let me give you an, a, an excerpt out of... Uh, this sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, this is what Jonathan Edwards said. And he preached this in America. He preached this all over the world. That, and I'm not saying this guy wasn't a Christian. I'm not saying he wasn't a, a, a wonderful minister. And I'm not saying you should throw away anything Jonathan Edwards ever wrote. But I'm saying on that Sunday that he preached this message, he missed it. Big time. Okay? But that was his understanding based on the religions of that day. This is, this is how his sermon goes. Listen to it. I'm quoting him. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. By the way, abhor means hates. Hates you and is dreadfully provoked. 
His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Unquote. What a wonderful sermon to encourage the sinners to come to Jesus. He's dangling them over hell on a rock. I grew up with that type preaching. And a lot of us in this room also did as well. And they portray God as an angry God. And, and, uh, and I have been into, I've been in services. I, I can remember specific places that come to my mind where people have prophesied or, or uh, someone gave a message in tongues and it was, the interpretation was God's fist to kill somebody. There's going to be a funeral, in, you know, in next week. Or, I mean, I, you know, I don't care how much you religion stuff, you, it's just not true. Uh, Jonathan Edwards portrayed God. He said, God hates you. God holds you over hell. His wrath towards you burns like fire. Uh, is, is this the picture of the Father that Jesus showed us? Absolutely not. No, no not even close. Listen, I, I want you to understand something. Uh, no, nobody in the old covenant where you see things written about God ever really saw God. They, they had glimpses of God, not Moses, David, Elijah, not even Jacob. They just all had glimpses of him, uh, but nobody really knew him as the Father. Remember in the New Testament, Philip said, Lord, you know, show us the Father. Jesus replied to him. He said, he said when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. They hadn't really seen Father. Jesus came to put, a, to put a, not only a face but a body on God. Before Jesus came, God was an invisible God that spoke from Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant. But uh, what about Jesus? In other words, if Jesus is the accurate picture of God, then, then your whole theology of who God is must come from your understanding and what you see in the life of Jesus. And you see how Jesus d dealt with people, how the, the woman caught in the act of adultery. He, he didn't condemn her. He said he did tell her, go and sin no more. But let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, go and sin no more or else. <clears throat> he said, go and sin no more. Because you don't have to. It's not, God's come to give you life. And so prior to Jesus coming, yes, there was wrath from God against mankind for sin. Because man had entered into a covenant and said, we'll keep it. They never did. But all that changed at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every bit of that changed. And, and so what does the New Testament say today? Hebrews 8 and 12 says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, somebody's got to be true here. And so I'm going to go with God. God says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Do, do, I mean, do you believe that? Okay, so God doesn't remember them. So when you come to God with your laundry list of all the things you've done and you think God's looking at you through those lens of all that you've done, that is a lie. And that will, that will hinder you from the intimacy that God designs for you. Hebrews 10 and 17, you need another one. It says, therefore he adds their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. God said, I will remember them no more. Okay? Is the Holy Spirit God? Yeah, I, I got to wait. I had to drink on that because y'all was so. Is the Holy Spirit God? Isn't that what Acts says? The Holy Spirit is God. 
The Holy Spirit is God. God the Holy Spirit, right? So God is saying, I won't remember their sins anymore. So the Holy Spirit's not convicting you of your sin. The Holy Spirit's not convicting you of your sin. He's trying to convince you. of the, He convicts the world of sin, Jesus said, for they do not believe in God. But as far as the believer, all he's trying to convince you of is your righteousness in Christ. Can you say amen? Now, Isaiah spoke about this glorious new covenant that was to come, and he prophesied about it. And, and he said when, when this new covenant comes, he prophesied that God's anger will cease. Now, Isaiah chapter 54 Verses 8 through 10. Listen to this. This is the word of God. It says, with a little wrath. Now, this is God talking. With a little wrath, God said, I hid my face from you but for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you. Now, this is the prophet prophesying. It says, the Lord, your redeemer. And then he goes in verse 9. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. Now, once God says that, that puts us in a big bracket. Hugely world-changing God said, this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I swore that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn to you that I will not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Do you all hear what God said? God said, I'm not going to be angry with you or rebuke you. Now, God made a covenant and, and a promise with Noah, and he sealed that promise with the, with the rainbow. And what the rainbow is, is, is a bow and arrow, but the arrow is missing. A lot of people don't understand that. But the bow is the bow and arrow, but there's no arrow in it. So that can't hurt you no more. The arrow has been removed. The wrath of God has been removed. The judgment, you understand what I'm saying? And, and so, so he said, this is like that to me. I will not be angry, nor will I rebuke you. And then he said in verse 10, for the mountains shall depart. Hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. So don't believe anybody that ever portrays God today as an angry God because he is not angry. You cannot make him mad. He's in a really good mood. I talked to him this morning. He told me to tell you he's in a good mood. He does not fluctuate and go up and down. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Again, it says that God was in Christ. What was he doing? Reconciling the world to himself. This, what was he, how did he do that? Not imputing their trespasses to them. What does imputing mean? Not counting them, not recording them. This is another one I could hit later, but it, it's coming to my mind right now. So how many was ever been told or heard that when you stand before the judgment of God, they're going to play the video of all your secret sins? Can I see your hand? My God, hold your hand up. You ever heard a preacher or somebody say that from the pulpit? Bless our hearts for being lied to. There's nothing further from the truth. God does not have a big video player where he is recording your sins, and when you stand before God, you're going to have to stand there, and he's going to play all your secret sins. I mean, it's, 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 it's just ridiculous. I don't even know what to say how ridiculous that is. But I grew up hearing that periodically preached from the pulpit. You're going to stand for God, and God's going to play that video. It's just the lies of religion, and it's not true. God said, I will not impute their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What does reconcile mean? It means to balance the books, to make peace. And that's what God did through Christ. Number three, Jesus did not say and never said you need to get closer to God as a believer. 
You need to seek God to get closer to God. You need to seek to get closer to God. This is one that I still hear so often that it nauseates me. But they'll say, you know, go, go get this person to pray for you. They're close to God, Brother Dale. Or I know this person, I tell you, they're really close to the Lord, Brother Dale. They're close to God. Which is saying, I'm not close. Or they're not as close to God as that person. So we have all these different positions with God. We have some people that are real close to the Lord, some people that are not so close to God. Which category are you in? Are you close to God? If somebody came up to you today and said, are you close to the Lord? You would go, well, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to. You'll never make it. There's nothing you can do to make yourself close to God. I understand sometimes in our human bodies, we, we don't feel close to the Lord maybe. But don't you kind of feel closer to the Lord in the middle of the worship service? I mean, come on. I mean, we're worshiping. We're singing songs of Zion. We're hands lifted. We're praising God. I mean, you feel closer to the Lord than you do working at the factory, turning the wrench maybe. In that moment, I'm just saying. But do you know your proximity to God never changes, never has, never will? And so would you please stop wasting time and stop fueling that, that false theology that you can, as a believer, get closer to God. Now, where does that come from? It comes out of the book of James chapter 4. Verse 8, people misapply this verse where James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Hold it right there. Now, if that's all it said, we could say, well, maybe we're supposed to. Uh, God said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That implies that he's not near to you and then you've got to do something to get him to come near to you. So if you draw near to God, then, then God will draw near to you. But God's waiting on you. God's like this. I'm not doing nothing to you do something. So in other words, it puts it off on you to do something in order for God to do something. But let's read the verse. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Who's he talking to? Sinners. Who are sinners? People that are not born again. Okay? Purify your hearts. Who, who, whose hearts are not pure? Those who have not been born again. Those who have not been born again. So this verse it has nothing to do with believers. This verse is, to, is for sinners. And sinners are not nigh to God. They're not nigh to God. Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Ephesians 2, 12, 13, look at what it says. Paul's saying to these people, he said, at that time you were without Christ. In other words, you were without Jesus, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. He said that was your condition before you met Jesus. Does that sound like a sinner? Yeah. 13, but now, everybody say, but now. See, things change when you put your faith in Jesus. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were, how, where? Far off. Have been, not will be if you seek, have been brought where? By what? So what is it that makes you near to God? Is it your praying, giving, reading, seeking, worshiping? No. There's one thing that makes you nigh to God, near to God, and that's the blood of Christ. If the blood of Christ made you near, what is it that is so powerful that can make you unnear? If the blood of Christ, so you got to tell me something more powerful than the blood of So are you going to sit there and tell me your sin is more powerful than the blood of Jesus? If it was, it would have no effect on sin. You see how all this stuff unravels and falls apart? 
I'm just simply trying to get you as a believer to knock it off and to just admit that you, see, all right, ha, okay, let me lead a prayer here. Can I, is it okay to pause and pray? Okay, this is called Grace Point Church, right? Did I in this morning? Am I at the right place? Okay, here we go. Right, let's, are we in the sanctuary here, right? Are we all, are we in the sanctuary at Grace Point Church, yes or no? I just, I, I want to be sure where I'm at. Am I in the sanctuary at Grace Point Church, Valdez, Georgia? Okay, I want, I want to pray just a minute. Father, I just pray that you would bring me near to Grace Point Church Sanctuary in Valdosta, Georgia. Lord, I just... See how stupid that is? So here I'm spending time praying that God would bring me near to the sanctuary of Grace Point Church in Valdosta, but I'm actually in the sanctuary at Point. You get my point, right? Okay, so when you got born again, you were placed where? If any man be in Christ, he is a new... Okay, so when you got born again, you got put where? And you're going to pray near to get near. You're going to try to get close to the one you've been put inside of. Is as dumb as saying I'm in the sanctuary, but I'm going to pray to get closer to the sanctuary. Point made? How about point taken? Knock it off. Don't do it. Don't buy into it. Don't believe the lie. I don't care if you feel close or it don't matter. You, you close. You in. You in like skin, baby. You in there. You are in Christ Jesus. They can't nobody move you out of there. You are in. And so everybody's close. You're close to God. Knock off. Go get them to pray. They're close to the Lord. I tell you, brother, Dale, they're close to God. Yeah, I am too. I'm just as close as they are. Let's try that one time, break up the conversations, okay? Number four, you need to, Jesus never said you need to put that sin, brother, under the blood. How many was, how many was raised up and heard? You just need to put that under the blood, brother. You just need to put that under the blood. You just need to apply the blood to that. You need to put that under the blood. Your sins are not under the blood of Jesus. It's real popular in the church. People say it, and they act like Jesus said it, but Jesus never did. Your sins are not under the blood of Jesus. No more. See, that's to be the same. Like, okay, so I go to your house. There's a big pile of dirt, but you lift up your rug, and you sweep the dirt under the rug and throw the rug over it. Now, your rugs don't have a little round place where the dirt is piled up under it, but at least I don't see it. You with me? That's not the way it is with your sin. Jesus did not cover your sin. He removed sin. How far did he remove it? The, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west. Get back to me on how far that is. When you get through with the math on that one, send me an email. Okay? Listen, remember when John baptized Jesus? He said, behold the Lamb of God that does what? He didn't say cover your sin, did he? He said takes it away. And which sin did he take away? Yeah, all, but all, all the sin of the world. Does that include yours? Did that include the ones you hadn't even done yet? You better hope so because you wasn't even born then. So if there's no such thing as future forgiveness, we're all lost in this room waiting on the second crucifixion. That's not going to happen, is it? That means all your sins that you hadn't even committed were forgiven and paid for at that cross. And so... Hebrews 10, chapter 4 says, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. 
But it is possible that the blood of Jesus, that precious, spotless, sinless blood of the Lamb of God, took it away. He took it away. Okay? So you got to know that your sins are not under the blood. And don't go around. And let me tell you something. You just need to apply the blood. Listen, you're not the Messiah. Neither am I. You can't apply the blood. You don't have a big fountain pool of the blood of Jesus where you can run over there and dip it when you want. You don't apply. Jesus applied his own blood on the mercy seat, the Bible says, in heaven. Jesus, as the high priest, applied his own blood. You don't apply the blood of Christ. You don't apply the blood of Christ. Uh, Jesus applied his own blood and God accepted that sacrifice and the payment of sin was stamped in full. Number five, Jesus never said God helps those who help themselves. You ever hear that one? I'll throw that in the same category as you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible either, but I won't talk about that one. But God helps those who help themselves. Let me tell you something. God helps people that cannot help themselves. And the Bible's filled with it. God helps the helpless. God helps the homeless. God, God helps the powerless. God helps the widows. God helps the fatherless. God helps the sick. Get this one. God even helped the dead. How can they help themselves? Dead man, well, I'll help you if you help yourself. I mean, how, how, that, that don't make no sense. Listen, God helps everybody. So you, you just don't believe that. Psalm 121, verse 1 and 2, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills of Zion from which cometh my help. My help comes from where? The Lord. God, 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 God helps. He helps the fatherless, the widow, the helpless. It's, it's just not true. It's, it's just not true. Number six thing that Jesus never said is when you get in a real bind, maybe the devil's aggravating you, maybe you're in a real crisis, you need to plead the blood of Jesus over that situation. Or you need to plead the blood over your children. Or you need to plead the blood. This is real popular, particularly among Pentecostal charismatic people. We, we grew up here and people say you need to plead the blood. How many was raised hearing that you need to plead the blood of Jesus when you got in a bind? Come on, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed of it. Look at it, almost everybody in here. Plead the blood. And I, would, I grew up hearing people, older people in church, I plead the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood. You know, like that was going to make the devil. It was almost like, you know, holding up the cross, you know, to a demonized person. You can't come past this, you know. And they would say things like that. You can't come past the bloodline. You can't do, and, and, they, and they would go in, and it's almost like, an inca it's almost like witchcraft. It's like an incanta incantation. Can I tell you, there's never one hint of that in the Bible. Now, our confidence is in the blood of Jesus. Make no mistake. What shall make me whole again? What shall, the nothing but the blood of Jesus. We understand? But that's, that's a difference in me pleading the, the blood. Because I just want you to just relax. You don't have to plead the blood. The blood pleads for you. Uh, I figure you'd need Bible for that. Hebrews 12, 24, it says to Jesus, to Jesus now, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, wh who's doing the speaking here? The blood of Jesus speaks. You, you, you don't have to speak. See, Abel, uh, Cain murdered Abel. You remember Old Covenant, okay? His blood in Genesis 4.10 cried out for justice from the ground. But Jesus' blood, the Bible says, speaks from heaven. In other words, Abel's blood cried out from the earth for justice. But Jesus' blood, it says, speaks from heaven, and it announces mercy for sinners. Now, what did Abel's blood cry out for? It made Cain feel guilty, 
and rightly so, and drove him away in despair and depression. But Christ's blood, what does it do? It frees us from the guilt, and it opens up the way into the presence of God forever. I, I just want you to have the confidence to know that you don't have to plead the blood. The blood's pleading for you every day of your life. Jesus' blood is declaring you righteous. Jesus' blood is declaring you holy. Jesus' blood is declaring you forgiven. Jesus' blood is declaring you justified before God. Jesus' blood has made you nigh to God. Jesus' blood has done that. And, it, and his blood is continually speaking that truth. Can you say amen? Number seven thing Jesus never said is I can't heal you because there's too much sin in your life. I would want to heal you. I'd like to heal you of your sickness, your disease, your, your problem, but you got too much sin in your life, and therefore I can't heal you. Anybody ever heard that one, whether it was stated didactically like that or insinuated? But there's a lot of people who feel like that God can't heal them. He can't help them. He can't move into their situation because they just got too much sin in their life. Can I tell you just real quick, that is just a big live religion. Y'all remember the woman in the, with the, the Bible called it with the issue of blood? She had this hemorrhaging, this menstrual he, uh, uh, hemorrhaging that had gone on for 12 years. And, and, and now we've got to remember during that time that Jesus is still walking and preaching, they're under the law, right? You agree? They're under the law because Jesus hadn't went to the cross yet. And so the Bible command, the law, the law of God commanded this woman to stay home with that hemorrhaging. Because she was ceremonially unclean, and anything she touched was defiled and unclean. And yet this woman is a law-breaking sinner. And she violates the law of God, the law of Moses, and she comes out into the public, and she touches Jesus' garment. Isn't that something? And what did you, he healed her. He healed her right there. He healed a law-breaking sinner. Hey, I'll give you another one. You remember when they came to arrest Jesus and we got all these soldiers coming and these thugs with torches and spears and, and swords and, and they're coming to take Jesus. And, 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 and so in the melee, remember, a dude got his ear cut off and he's one of the people come to arrest Jesus. He's part of the crowd that's coming to take him captive. And here that guy, that guy sure ain't a Christian. That guy sure ain't a believer. And he got his ear cut off in the melee. And Jesus reached down and done a miracle and healed him. I could stand here all day and give. Can I say this to you? Everybody that Jesus healed in the New Testament was a sinner. <laughs> Think of that one. Because nobody was born again until Jesus was resurrected. So they're all sinners. And all the healings that he did. And all the things that he did for all those people. Were, they were all sinners. What's our excuse? Don't you ever believe the lie where the Lord could help me if I didn't have so much sin. I'm not advocating sin. I'm not saying to pile on sin. I'm just saying that's not an obstacle to God. Because right. Jesus did what? He took it away. Number, are y'all liking this? Number eight thing that Jesus never said is you better humbly come before God's throne. I grew up on this. Lord, we come to you just as humble as we know how. Y'all remember Grandpa praying that in the church? Lord, we come to you just as humble as we know how. And so you've you got this image of us crawling like worms to the throne of God, hoping God don't just burn us up right there as charcoal briquettes. We just come in there slithering our way in. Is that what the Bible teaches that we're to do? Is that how the Bible teaches that we're to approach God? How does it say we're supposed to approach God? Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore come how? 
That's different, isn't it? Let us come boldly where? To the throne of what? And notice it don't say throne of judgment. A throne I'm going to get you. What kind of throne does God sit on? What's the name of this church? That is the point. Okay? It is a grace throne. God sits and rules and reigns from a throne of grace. For you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so, so he says that you will come boldly to the throne. Nobody ever taught me I could come boldly. The Bible says the righteous are bold as a what? The righteous are though. And you know what I used to, when I would read that verse, it meant nothing to me because I never saw myself as righteous. I always thought there's some people in the church that are righteous. I just don't happen to be one of them. I'm trying, but I just don't ever, I never felt like I actually achieved where I could actually honestly in my gut say I'm righteous before God. I never did that until I got the revelation of God's grace. I never saw myself truly deep down in my heart of hearts. I never saw myself truly where I could boldly say I'm righteous before God and stand there with any degree of confidence at all. But I do it now because I realize that my righteousness is not something I achieve. It's something that I receive through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was a gift. The Bible calls it the gift of righteousness. To many as you have received the gift of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. I, I, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was given to me. And so now that I know I'm righteous, see, it's a whole different thing. I come before the Lord now boldly because I ain't coming with nothing that Dale's ever done. I'm not coming with my sin, and I'm also not coming with my good deeds or not more my benevolence. I'm coming in the name of Jesus. I'm coming in what his sacrifice. My focus is on him. So I come boldly before the throne room of grace, knowing to make my petition known that God's able to be a present help in time of trouble. God's always there for me. So I don't come in slithering. I come in like a son. I don't have to ask. You don't have to ask. My, my sons and my, my children don't have to ask. The grandbabies don't have to ask. They steady in that pantry getting out what they want. They stay in that refrigerator getting what they want. And if they don't see what they want, they come to El Shaddad, me, the dad of more than enough. And they'll say, I want this, Poppy. I want this, whatever. See, God's not El Chipo. He's El Shaddai. He's the God of more than enough. Can you say amen? So come boldly before God. And, and, and if you're not coming boldly, you know what it is because you believe in a lie. And if you're not coming boldly, it's because you're coming with you. The focus is on you. Don't do that. Come boldly. You're a son. You're, you're a son of God. You come boldly. How can I come boldly before God? Because Jesus has brought you righteousness. You can come boldly before God. God's not going to bring up anything you've ever done. You're coming to a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. Can you say amen? Number nine, things that God never said is Jesus never said God gives and takes away. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. God didn't say that. See, y'all don't even know what to say right here because you're scared. You said that's in the Bible, ain't it? It is in the Bible, but God didn't say it. There's a lot in the Bible that God didn't say. I said there's a lot in the Bible. Who said that? Who? Job. Job wasn't saved, was he? It's okay to say no. He's in the old covenant. Nobody's saved in the old covenant. Not Moses, not David, none of them. Okay, so I ask again, was Job saved? No. Did Job have a Bible, commentary, computer, Google, nothing, none of that? Not everything that Job said was correct. 
Job said out of his own mouth, he said, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you face to face and I, I abhor, I hate myself. Job said, I spoke of things about you that I did not understand. Job thought in his day that everything that happened to him, good or bad, the evil that came his way was all God. You've you got to understand this. Job made that statement, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. But is, is that really the God that Jesus showed us? The, the God that Jesus showed us is the God that is, Paul wrote about in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, where it says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Listen to me. A gift is a gift, y'all. And if God ever gave you a gift, no matter what that gift is, God will never take it back. So if the Lord giveth, the Lord will not take away. To say that the Lord gives and then the Lord takes away is to make Jesus or God the thief. If I gave you something and then I come back a month later and I take it away, then I'm a thief. Don't be confused who the thief is. The thief cometh but to steal, kill, destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that in my hand what? Life. God's not a thief. So if God's ever given you anything, so God, listen to this one. God doesn't give you a baby, parents, and then comes a year later and takes it away because he needed an angel. I don't care what the preacher told you at the funeral. That's a lie. I'm amazed we've got anybody to even pray and seek God with all the mess that goes on. The Lord doesn't give and then take away. There is someone that wants to take away things that God's given. He's a thief, he's a robber, and he's a liar. He's the enemy. And he walks to and fro in the earth looking to seek whom he may devour. Can you say amen? And who does he devour? People that don't know the truth. Because it's the truth that makes people what? Free. Okay? I wish I had more time on this, but I don't. Last one. I got all 10 now. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus never said this. God loves you more if you obey him more. God loves you more if you obey him more. In other words, God loves you more if you do the things that God wants you to do. Now, that's the way it is in the world, isn't it? In the natural world, you do more, you're sweeter, stuff, people appreciate you better. But God's not like us. God, the Bible, this is what the Bible says. And I know, you, I know this is basic to some, but we've got to go past going, yeah, and giving mental assent, we've got to believe it in our heart. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is that the Bible? You believe it? So in other words, God demonstrated what? His love for you. By, by not just saying words, but by doing something. By suffering unimaginably. He, he did that for us while we were sinners. So Christ died for us while we were sinners. He demonstrated how much he loved us. So why do we think that we can make God love us more now? What could you possibly do that would make God more benevolent towards you than he was when he gave his son. You see, the, let me say it like to, you, to you like this. The love of God is like sunshine. Your behavior has no bearing on it. All right, think about this. You walk outside, beautiful sunny day, sun shining. No matter what you do and what you, your behavior, whether you're mean or benevolent, it's not going to change the sun. Are you with me? Your behavior has no bearing on it. The love of God is there. 
you know the verse that says it? Let me tell you how negative the church world, religious world is. All right. The, the Bible says this about God. He says he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. Now, that when you hear that verse, you, you're going to choose one or two sides of the coin, positive or negative. Can I say that most people, when they hear it, well, you know the Lord says he calls it to rain on the just and the unjust. Do you know there's nowhere in the Bible that rain is seen? Rain is a blessing. Rain is a blessing. Without rain, we all die. Without rain, there's no there, everything dies. Without rain, I mean, you, you let rain go for a long time here in the south, and we get into a drought. What they, they start having prayer meetings for rain, right down here in Valdosta. They'll 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 call churches and they'll start praying for. Rain. Am I telling the truth? We go into a drought this summer. We, they'll do the same, because rain is what? It's a blessing. It's a good thing. It's it's life falling from the heavens. So God says, I cause that life, that blessing, to come on the just, those that are born again. And those that are unjust, who's that? That have been born again. God says, I send my rain to both of them. I let the sun shine on everybody. The grace of God has appeared to how many men? All men. But to many as believed him, to them he gave the right to be the sons of God. See, that, that, that's, that's what God's love is. It, 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 your behavior's got no bearing on it. Uh, in the book of Revelation, people get confused about a verse. I won't go there and give you the verse. But he's writing to those seven churches. And one of the churches is the church of Ephesus. And, and, and he tells that church, he said, you have left your first love. Remember there? He rebuked the church. He said, you left your first love. Everybody say left. If I leave the building, it don't mean I lost the building. If, if I leave my house, it don't mean I lost my house. In other words, they left their first love, but they could never lose their first love. Can I say something to you here? And I end with this. Most Christians, most of us have grown up being taught either directly or indirectly that the first love is us loving God. And we're trained that way. And, we're, and we've been trained to think that, listen, can I say to you the Bible is extremely clear in the New Testament that the first love is not you loving God. Your love is just a simple response to the love of God. John said it like this, 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Who's loving first here? God is. For God so loved the world. Okay, 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we love God. In this is love. This is what it says love is. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the mercy seat, propitiation, the appeasing sacrifice for our sin. And so the, the first love, can I say something to you? Now, you, you, you may put yourself in a position where you don't enjoy the love of God. In other words, it'd be like going again. Okay, I'm out in the sunshine. I feel the warmth. It just feels so good, sunshine, hallelujah, you know, no matter what you do. But how many knows you can position yourself where you don't enjoy the full benefit of the sun? You, you, you can cover yourself. You can get under an umbrella. You can go inside where you're not enjoying the, but it, it don't mean the sun quit shining. It's just, you, it's just where you move to. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you can't move out of the love of God. You can't move where it doesn't affect. But, but what you can do is you can't enjoy it because you, you believe that it's based on you trying to love God. And this is why how I grew up almost every Sunday in church. Where, and I'm not, I don't mean this in a bad way, like a, just doing the best they could. But this is how just about every one of our services started, every, every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. How many of you love the Lord in here today? That was always said, almost without fail, every service. How many of you love God? And everybody would raise their hand. Because the basis was us loving God. 
And then the second one they would do is how many of you feel the presence of the Lord? <laughs> well, you don't always feel the presence of the Lord, do you? Or there's something wrong with my wiring. I don't always feel the presence of the Lord, but I know God's here. But what if we started church like this? How many of you know beyond all shadow of a doubt, no kidding, no, no kidding at all, that you know beyond all doubt that you are totally loved by God right now? You think the hands will, the same amount of hands would go up? Mm -mm. How many love the Lord? Yes, I love the Lord. How many of you know beyond all doubt that right smack now, God loves you more than anything? Get your hand up. You see what I'm saying? See, it's a different. It's a different. Okay, so I'm going to ask you for real right now, Grace Point. How many of you know right now in the present condition that you find yourself in, in this very moment, that you know beyond all doubt that you are absolutely loved by God and he can't improve on it? Stick your hand high. Come on, give him praise. Stand to your feet with me. Stand to your feet. Whew, got all 10 in. Things Jesus never said. You know what they were thinking about chains falling off? You know what this will do? It'll make chains fall off. It'll make religious chains fall off. Go, you know, I don't believe that. You need, you need to try to get close to God, brother. I am close. I'm born again. I'm close as I can get. Try that. That'll knock them off. I'm close as I can get. I can't get no closer. I'm, I'm in Jesus. How much closer can I be? You know? Go Jewish on them. <laughs> How much closer can I be? I'm in, I'm in Christ. What do you want me to do? What can I do? I'm in Christ. When you believe the truth, and you know the truth, then guess what? You start living the truth. When you start living the truth, then life looks different. Life will be different because truth is what makes you free. And God wants you free in every area and every thought in your life that our minds become renewed to the word of God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that we come boldly before the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord God, that when we leave this place, we don't leave you, that you go with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You'll go with us all the way even to the end of the age. Father, we give you praise that you remember our sins no more. We thank you, Father, that we have been gifted and given the most precious commodity, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for God putting us in Christ and putting me in Jesus so you could treat me like Jesus that you could answer my prayers like you answered Jesus' prayers, that you could look upon me and see your son Jesus. We give you praise for that today. We walk in the liberty and the freedom that that produces. In Christ's name, in Jesus' name. Everybody say it. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday.